Chapter One of Bealby, A Holiday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bealby, A Holiday by H. G. Wells. Chapter One Young Bealby Goes to Shunts. Subchapter One The cat is the offspring of a cat and the dog of a dog but butlers and ladies maids do not reproduce their kind they have other duties so their successes have to be sought among the prolific and particularly among the prolific on great estates such are gardeners but not undergardeners gamekeepers and coachmen but not lodge people because their years are too great and their lodges too small and among those to whom this opportunity of entering service came was young bealby who is the stepson of Mr. Darling, the gardener of Shantz. Everyone knows the glories of Shantz, its façade, its two towers, the great marble pond, the terraces where the peacocks walk, and the lower lake with the black and white swans, the great park and the avenue, the view of the river winding away across the blue country, and of the Shantz Velasquez, but that is now in America and the Chance Rubens, which is in the National Gallery, and the Chance Porcelain, and the Chance Past History. It was a refuge for the old faith. It had priest holes and secret passages, and how at last the Marquis had to let Chance to the Laxtons, the peptonized milk and baby soother people, for a long term of years. It was a splendid chance for any boy to begin his knowledge of service in so great an establishment, and only the natural perversity of human nature can explain the violent objection young Bealby took to anything of the sort. He did. He said he did not want to be a servant, and that he would not go and be a good boy and try his very best in that state of life to which it had pleased God to call him a chance. On the contrary, he communicated these views suddenly to his mother as she was preparing a steak and kidney pie in the bright little kitchen of the gardener's cottage he came in with his hair all ruffled and his face hot and distinctly dirty and his hands in his trousers pockets in the way he had been repeatedly told not to mother he said i'm not going to be a steward's boy at the house anyhow not if you tell me to not till you're blue in the face so that's all about it this delivered he remained panting having no further breath left in him his mother was a thin firm woman she paused in her rolling of the dough until he had finished and then she made a strong broadening sweep of the rolling pin and remained facing him leaning forward on that implement with her head a little on one side you will do she said whatsoever your father has said you will do he isn't my father said young bealby his mother gave a snapping nod of the head expressive of extreme determination anyhow i ain't going to do it said young bealby and feeling the conversation was difficult to sustain he moved towards the staircase door with a view to slamming it you'll do it said his mother right enough you see whether i do said young bealby and then got in his door slam rather hurriedly because of steps outside mr darling came in out of the sunshine a few moments later he was a large many-pocketed earthy whiskered man with a clean-shaven determined mouth and he carried a large pale cucumber in his hand. 
I told him, he said. What did he say? asked his wife. Nothing, said Mr. Darling. He says he won't, says Mrs. Darling. Mr. Darling regarded her thoughtfully for a moment. I never see such a boy, said Mr. Darling. Why, he's got to. Subchapter 2 But young Bealby maintained an obstinate fight against the inevitable. He had no gift of lucid exposition. I ain't going to be a servant, he said. I don't see what right people have making a servant of me. You got to be something, said Mr. Darling. Everybody's got to be something, said Mrs. Darling. Then let me be something else, said young Bealby. I just say you'd like to be a gentleman, said Mr. Darling. I wouldn't mind, said young Bealby. You got to be what your opportunities give you, said Mr. Darling. Young Bealby became breathless. Why shouldn't I be an engine driver, he asked. All oily, said his mother, and getting yourself killed in an accident and got to pay fines? You'd like to be an engine driver. Or a soldier. Oh, a swatty, said Mr. Darling decisively. Or the sea. With that weak stomach of yours, said Mrs. Darling. Besides which, said Mr. Darling, it's been arranged for you to go up to the house the very first of next month, and your box and everything ready. Young Bealby became very red in the face. I won't go, he said very faintly. You will, said Mrs. Darling, if I have to take you by the collar and the slack of your breeches to get you there. Subchapter 3 The heart of young Bealby was a cold of fire within his breast as, unassisted, he went across the dewy park up to the great house, whither his box was to follow him. He thought the world a rotten show. He also said, apparently to two does and a fawn, if you think I'm going to stand it, you know, you're jolly well mistaken. I do not attempt to justify his prejudice against honorable usefulness in a domestic capacity. He had it. Perhaps there is something in the air of Highbury, where he had spent the past eight years of his life, that leads to democratic ideals. It is one of those new places where estates seem almost forgotten. Perhaps, too, there was something in the Bilby strain. I think he would have objected to any employment at all. Hitherto he had been a remarkably free boy with a considerable gusto about his freedom. Why should that end? The little village mixed school had been a soft job for his cockney wits, and for a year and a half he had been top boy. Why not go on being top boy? Instead of which, under threats, he had to go across the sunlit corner of the park, through that slanting morning sunlight which had been so often the prelude to golden days of leafy wanderings. He had to go past the corner of the laundry where he had so often played cricket with the coachman's boys, already swallowed up into the working world. He had to follow the laundry wall to the end of the kitchen, and there, where the steps go down and underground, he had to say farewell to the sunlight, farewell to childhood, boyhood, freedom. He had to go down and along the stone corridor to the pantry, and there he had to ask for Mr. Mergelson. He paused on the top step and looked up at the blue sky across which a hawk was slowly drifting. His eyes followed the hawk out of sight, beyond a cypress bough. But indeed he was not thinking about the hawk. He was not seeing the hawk. He was struggling with the last wild impulse of his ferial nature. Why not sling it, his ferial nature was asking. 
why not even now do a bunk it would have been better for him perhaps and better for mr mergelson and better for shantz if he had yielded to the whisper of the tempter but his heart was heavy within him and he had no lunch and never a penny one can do but a very little bunk on an empty belly must was written all over him he went down the steps the passage was long and cool and, and at the end of it was a swing door through that and then to the left he knew one had to go past the still room and so to the pantry the maids were at breakfast in the still room with the door open the grimace he made in passing was intended rather to entertain than to insult and anyhow a chap must do something with his face and then he came to the pantry and into the presence of mr mergelson mr mergelson was in his short sleeves and generally dishevelled having an early cup of tea and an atmosphere full of the bleak memories of overnight he was an ample man with a large nose a vast underlip and mutton-chop side whiskers his voice would have suited a succulent parrot he took out a gold watch from his waistcoat pocket and regarded it ten minutes past seven young man he said isn't seven o'clock young bilby made no articulate answer just stand there for a minute said mr mergelson and when i'm at liberty i'll run through your duties and almost ostentatiously he gave himself up to the enjoyment of his cup of tea three other gentlemen in dishabille sat at table with mr mergelson they regarded young bilby with attention and the youngest a red-haired bare-faced youth in shirt-sleeves and a green apron was moved to a grimace that was clearly designed to echo the scowl on young bilby's features the fury that had been subdued by a momentary awe of mr mergelson revived and gathered force young bilby's face became scarlet his eyes filled with tears and his mind with a need for movement after all he wouldn't stand it he turned round abruptly and made for the door where on earth you going to cried mr mergelson he's shy cried the second footman steady on cried the first footman and had him by the shoulder in the doorway let me go howled the new recruit struggling i won't be a blooming servant i won't here cried mr mergelson gesticulating with his teaspoon bring him to the end of the table there what's this about a blooming servant bilby suddenly blubbering was replaced at the end of the table may i ask what's this about a blooming servant asked mr mergelson sniff and silence did i understand you to say that you ain't to be a blooming servant young bilby yes said young bilby thomas said mr mergelson just smacked his head smack it rather ard things too rapid to relate occurred so you'd bite would you said thomas ah said mr mergelson got him that one just smack his head once more said mr mergelson and now you just stand there young man until i'm at liberty to attend to you further said mr mergelson and finish his tea slowly and eloquently the second footman rubbed his shin thoughtfully if i got to smack his head much he said he'd better change into his slippers take him to his room said mr mergelson getting up see he washes the grief and grubbiness off his face in the hand wash at the end of the passage and make him put on his slippers then show him how to lay the table in the steward's room. Subchapter 4
the duties to which bilby was introduced struck him as perplexingly various undesirably numerous uninteresting and difficult to remember and also he did not try to remember them very well because he wanted to do them as badly as possible and he thought that forgetting would be a good way of starting at that he was beginning at the bottom of the ladder to him it fell to wait on the upper servants and the green baize door at the top of the service staircase was the limit of his range his room was a small wedge-shaped apartment under some steps leading to the servants hall lit by a window that did not open and they gave upon the underground passage he received its instructions in a state of crumpled mutinyness but for a day his desire to be remarkably impossible was more than counterbalanced by his respect for the large able hands of the four manservants his seniors and by a disclination to be returned too promptly to the gardens then in a tentative manner he broke two plates and got his head smacked by mr murgelson himself mr murgelson gave a staccato slap quite as powerful as thomas's but otherwise different the hand of mr murgelson was large and fat and he got his effects by dash thomas's was horny and lingered after that young bilby put salt in the teapot in which the housekeeper made tea but that he observed she washed out with hot water before she put in the tea it was clear that he had wasted his salt which ought to have gone into the kettle next time the kettle beyond telling him his duties almost excessively nobody conversed with young bilby during the long hours of his first day in service at midday dinner in the servants hall he made one of the kitchen maids giggle by pulling faces and tend to be delicately suggestive of mr murgelson but that was his nearest approach to disinterested human intercourse when the hour for retirement came get out of it go to bed you dirty little kicker said thomas we've had about enough of you for one day young bilby sat for a long time on the edge of his bed weighing the possibilities of arson and poison he wished he had some poison some sort of poison with a medieval manner poison that hurts before it kills also he produced a small penny pocket-book with a glazed black cover and blue edges he headed one page of this murgelson and entered beneath it three black crosses then he opened an account to thomas who was manifestly destined to be his principal creditor bilby was not a forgiving boy at the village school they had been too busy making him a good churchman to attend to things like that there were a lot of crosses for thomas and while bilby made these sinister memoranda downstairs lady laxton for laxton had bought a baronetcy for twenty thousand down to the party funds and a tip to the whip over the peptonized milk flotation lady laxton a couple of floors above bilby's ruffled head mused over her approaching weekend party it was an important weekend party the lord chancellor of england was coming never before had she had so much as a member of the cabinet at chance he was coming and do what she would she could not help but connect it with her very strong desire to see the master of chance in the clear scarlet of a deputy lieutenant peter would look so well in that the lord chancellor was coming and to meet him and to circle about him there were lord john woodenhouse and slinker bond there were the countess of barracks and mrs rampond philby the novelist with her husband rampond 
philby there was professor tambra the philosopher and there were four smaller though quite good people who would run about very satisfactorily among the others at least she thought they would run about very satisfactorily amongst the others not imagining any evil of her cousin captain douglas all this good company and shots fill lady laxton with a pleasant realization of progressive successes but at the same time one must confess that she felt a certain diffidence in her heart of hearts she knew she had not made this party it had happened to her how it might go on happening to her she did not know it was beyond her control she hoped very earnestly that everything would pass off well the lord chancellor was as big a guest as any she had had one must grow as one grows but still being easy and friendly with him would be she knew a tremendous effort rather like being easy and friendly with an elephant she was not good at conversation the task of interesting people taxed her and puzzled her it was slinker bond the whip who had arranged the whole business after it must be confessed a hint from sir peter laxton had complained that the government were neglecting this part of the country they ought to show up more than they do in the county said sir peter and added almost carelessly i could easily put anybody up at shaunt's there were to be two select dinner parties and a large but still select sunday lunch to let in the countryside to the spectacle of the laxtons taking their new proper place at shaunt's it was not only the sense of her deficiencies that troubled lady laxton there were also her husband's excesses he had it was of no use disguising it rather too much the manner of an employer he had a way of getting how could one put it confident at dinner and murgleson seemed to delight in filling up his glass then he would contradict a good deal she felt that lord chancellors however the sort of men one doesn't contradict then the lord chancellor was said to be interested in philosophy a difficult subject she had got tambra to talk to him about that tambra was a professor of philosophy at oxford so that was sure to be all right but she wished she knew one or two good safe things to say in philosophy herself she had long felt the need of a secretary and now she felt it more than ever if she had a secretary she could just tell him what it was she wanted to talk about and he could get her one or two of the right books and mark the best passages and she could learn it all up she feared it was a worrying fear that laxton would say right out and very early in the weekend that he didn't believe in philosophy he had a way of saying he didn't believe in large things like that art philanthropy novels and so on sometimes he said i don't believe in all of this art or whatever it was she had watched people's faces when he had said it and she had come to the conclusion that saying you don't believe in things isn't the sort of thing people say nowadays it was wrong somehow but she did not want to tell laxton directly that it was wrong he would remember if she did but he had a way of taking such things rather badly at the time she hated him to take things badly if one could invent some little hint she whispered to herself she had often wished she was better at hints she was you see a gentlewoman modest kindly her people were quite good people poor of course but she was not clever she was anything but clever 
and the wives of these captains of industry need to be very clever indeed if they are to escape a magnificent social isolation they get the titles and the big places and all that sort of thing people don't at all intend to isolate them but there is nevertheless an inadvertent avoidance even as she uttered these words if one could invent some little hint beobly down there less than forty feet away through the solid floor below her feet and a little to the right was wetting his stump of pencil as wet as he could in order to ensure a sufficiently emphatic fourteenth cross on the score-sheet of the doomed thomas most of the other thirteen marks were done with such hard-breathing emphasis that the print of them went more than halfway through that little blue-edged book subchapter five the arrival of the weekend guests impressed Bealby at first merely as a blessed influence that withdrew the four men-servants into that unknown world on the other side of the green baize door but then he learnt that it also involved the appearance of five new persons two valets and three maids for whom places had to be laid in the steward's room otherwise lady laxton's social arrangements had no more influence upon the mind of Bealby than the private affairs of the emperor of china there was something going on up there beyond even his curiosity all he heard of was a distant coming and going of vehicles and some slight talk to which he was inattentive while the coachmen and grooms were having a drink in the pantry till these maids and valets appeared they seemed to him to appear suddenly out of nothing like slugs after rain black and rather shiny sitting about inactively and quietly consuming small matters he disliked them and they regarded him without affection or respect who cared he indicated his feelings towards them as soon as he was out of the steward's room by a gesture of the hand and nose venerable only by reason of its antiquity he had things more urgent to think about than strange valets and maids thomas had laid hands on him jeered at him inflicted shameful indignities on him and he wanted to kill thomas in some frightful manner but if possible unobtrusively if he had been a little japanese boy this would have been an entirely honourable desire it would have been bushito and all that sort of thing in the gardener's stepson however it is undesirable thomas on the other hand having remarked the red light of revenge in bealby's eye and being secretly afraid felt that his honour was concerned in not relaxing his persecutions he called him kicker and when he did not answer to that name he called him snorter bleater snooks and finally tweaked his ear then he saw fit to assume that bealby was deaf and that ear tweaking was the only available method of address this led on to the convention of a sign language whereby ideas were communicated to bealby by means of painful but frequently quite ingeniously symbolical freedoms with various parts of his person also thomas affected to discover uncleanliness in bealby's head and succeeded after many difficulties in putting it in a sinkful of lukewarm water meanwhile young bealby devoted such scanty time as he could give to reflection to debating whether it is better to attack thomas suddenly with a carving knife or throw a lighted lamp the large pantry ink-pot of pewter might be effective in its way he thought but he doubted whether in the event of a charge it had sufficient stopping power 
he was also curiously attracted by a long two-pronged toasting fork that hung at the side of the pantry fireplace it had reach over all these dark thoughts and ill-conceived emotions mr murgelson prevailed large yet speedy speedy yet exact parroting orders and making plump gestures performing duties and seeing that duties were performed matters came to a climax late on saturday night at the end of a trying day just before mr murgelson went round to lock up and turn out the lights thomas came into the pantry close behind bealby who greatly belated through his own inefficiency was carrying a tray of glasses from the steward's room applied an ungentle hand to his neck and ruffled up his back hair in a smart and painful manner at the same time thomas remarked brr bealby stood still for a moment and then put down his tray on the table and making peculiar sounds as he did so resorted very rapidly to the toasting fork he got a prong into thomas's chin at the first prod how swift are the changes of the human soul at the moment of his thrust young bealby was a primordial savage so soon as he saw this incredible piercing of thomas's chin for all the care that bealby had taken it might just as well have been thomas's eye he moved swiftly through the ages and became a simple christian child he abandoned violence and fled the fork hung for a moment from the visage of thomas like a twisted beard of brass and then rattled on the ground thomas clapped his hand to his chin and discovered blood you little he never found the right word which perhaps is just as well instead he started in pursuit of bealby bealby in his sudden horror of his own act and thomas fled headlong into the passage and made straight for the service stairs that went up into a higher world he had little time to think thomas with a red smeared chin appeared in pursuit thomas the avenger thomas really roused bealby shot through the green bay's door and the pursuing footman pulled up only just in time not to follow him only just in time he had an instinctive instant anxious fear of great dangers he heard something a sound as though the young of some very large animal had squeaked feebly he had a glimpse of something black and white and large then something some glass thing smashed he steadied the green baize door which was wobbling on its brass hinges controlled his panting breath and listened a low rich voice was ejaculating it was not bealby's voice it was the voice of some substantial person being quietly but deeply angry there were the ejaculations restrained in tone but not in quality of a ripe and well-stored mind no boy's thin stuff then very softly thomas pushed open the door just widely enough to see and as instantly let it fall back into place very gently and yet with an alert rapidity he turned around and stole down the service stairs his superior officer appeared in the passage below. "'Mr. Murgelson,' he cried. "'I say, Mr. Murgelson. "'What's up?' said Mr. Murgelson. "'He's gone. "'Who? "'Ealby. "'Home?' "'This almost hopefully. "'No. "'Where? "'Up there. "'I think he ran against somebody.' Mr. Murgelson scrutinized his subordinate's face for a second. Then he listened intently. Both men listened intently have to fetch him out of that said mr murgelson suddenly preparing for brisk activity 
thomas bent lower over the banisters the lord chancellor he whispered with white lips and a sideways gesture of his head what about him said murgleson arrested by something in the manner of thomas thomas's whisper became so fine that mr murgleson drew nearer to catch it and put up a hand to his ear thomas repeated the last remark he's just through there on the landing cursing and swearing horrible things more like a mad turkey than a human being where's bealby he must have run into him said thomas after consideration but now where is he thomas pantomimed infinite perplexity mr murgleson reflected and sided upon his line he came up the service staircase lifted his chin and with an air of meek officiousness went through the green door there was no one now on the landing there was nothing remarkable on the landing except a broken tumbler but halfway up the grand staircase stood the lord chancellor under one arm the great jurist carried a soda-water siphon and he grasped a decanter of whisky in his hand he turned sharply at the sound of the green baize door and bent upon mr murgleson the most terrible eyebrows that ever surely adorned a legal visage he was very red in the face and savage-looking was it you he said with a threatening gesture of the decanter and his voice betrayed a noble indignation was it you who slapped me behind slapped you behind me lord slap me behind don't i speak plainly i such a liberty me lord idiot i ask you a plain question with almost inconceivable alacrity mr murgleson rushed up three steps leaped forward and caught the siphon as it slipped from the lordship's arm he caught it but at a price he overset and clasping it in his hands struck his lordship first with the siphon on the left shin and then butted him with a face that was still earnestly respectful in the knees his lordship's legs were driven sideways so that they were no longer beneath his centre of gravity with a monosyllabic remark of a typographical nature his lordship collapsed upon mr murgleson the decanter flew out of his grasp and smashed presently with emphasis upon the landing below the siphon escaping from the wreckage of mr murgleson and drawn no doubt by a natural affinity rolled noisily from step to step in pursuit of the decanter it was a curious little procession that hurried down the great staircase of Shantz that night first the whisky like a winged harbinger with a pedestrian siphon in pursuit then the great lawyer gripping the great butler by the tails of his coat and punching furiously then mr murgleson trying wildly to be respectful even in disaster first the lord chancellor dived over mr murgleson grappling as he passed then mr murgleson attempting explanations was pulled backwards over the lord chancellor then again the lord chancellor was for a giddy but vindictive moment uppermost a second rotation and they reached the landing bang there was a deafening report End of chapter one